back here. Good morning. Uh, my name is Ross. Uh, if I have not met you yet, I get to serve here as a family pastor, and I'm part of the, the preaching team, as I was just reminded this morning. And, uh, and I'm excited to be here. We're in our second week of our Advent series uh, this, this month. We're looking at four major themes uh, of Advent, and this week we're looking at love, that is God's love in the incarnation and imaged and what I want us to think about as we think about God's love is is the comfort that that love that love that that love images in the gospel that the comfort of God uh, as an image of his love so we're going to be in Isaiah 40 which is what Braden and Gabby just Braden read for us uh, just now you can turn there with me in your Bibles Isaiah chapter 40 uh, verses 1 through 11 there are um, there are kids packets. Just a reminder: there's kid packets in the in the back. If you if you'd like uh, activities for your kids to work on, there's also a cry room. If there's a little, uh, if they need a little space to wiggle, and there are more sermon notes and bulletins, uh, handouts in the in the in the foyer as well. And as Lisa mentioned, we're excited. Starting uh, this Sunday in the second service, we're going to be offering children's ministry classes uh, beginning today. So uh, excited about that. Let's. Um, before we jump into Isaiah chapter 40, I want, I want you to think about, where is your happy place? Okay, you've probably been asked that before. Where, where do you go for comfort? Maybe the first thing that's in your mind when you think about your happy place is a recliner uh, in your living room with a blanket, maybe a fireplace and a book or a Netflix show or something like that. Maybe, maybe your happy place is somewhere very far south of here on a beach somewhere. Uh, maybe it's on a ski trail or in September with a rifle in your hands in the woods somewhere. We, we all have a happy place. We all have a place that we seek comfort. We also entertain beyond just like these temporary things. We also entertain vague spiritual ideas about comfort and what, what, what comfort is there. We, uh, we, we have find of... Uh, we, um, we, when, when big questions in life, when they start to stress us out, our minds, like where do we come from, where, what does this all mean, where, where are we going, we, we entertain and reassure ourselves with, with vague ideas about, well, if we're basically good people, we all go to heaven, and somehow heaven has this, uh, is a place where we all walk on clouds, and there's naked babies everywhere, and they all have wings growing out of their backs, creepily, and there's harps everywhere, right? We have ideas about comfort. Christmas is about comfort. It's about eggnog and pumpkin pie and sugar cookies. It's about feel-good music and Hallmark movies that just make us feel good even though we know how they're going to end. Christmas is about comfort. Uh, we all have notions. Humans, we are comfort seekers. That's what we do. We seek comfort. And as big as, as, as central as an idea as comfort is in our lives and in our, in, in our pursuits, we have to ask ourselves, from God's perspective, where does true comfort come? What does the Bible, what, what comfort is actually offered you in the gospel? And I think Isaiah chapter 40, as we just read, is, um, answers this question. So uh, let me pray for us, and then I'm going to read it. I know Braden just read it. I'm just going to read it again for us to get our minds wrapped around this text. So if you have a copy of, of Scripture, please open there. It'd be great to, I'll have it on the screen uh, for a while, but then it's going to disappear. And so it'd be good nice to, to follow along a little bit. So turn to Isaiah chapter 40. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read that again. Father, teach us what it means to know your love. 
Teach us true comfort. Form our hearts and our minds as we come to your word. We pray that you would do this for your glory and for our joy. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level uh, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms. He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. It would be difficult, I think, to find a more beautiful piece of poetry really in most all of human literature. But even more than being beautiful, what Isaiah is doing here in promising this comfort is amazing historically. What Isaiah is doing uh, to to the people of Israel who are hearing this is he's looking forward hundreds and hundreds and uh, hundreds of years promising hope. He's he's, he's, he's speaking to Israel at a time of of decline. Justin talked a lot about this last week. Uh, Israel is in decline. Their judgment and exile to Babylon is impending. It's about 150 years off at this time. So, So they've got 150 years to go before the climax of their judgment. And then that judgment would last for a period of 70 years. So that's 220 years more. And then even, even after they return from exile, the people of Israel are still in a kind of an exile them, uh, even while they've, after they've entered this land. So, but uh, even, so well before even the judgment comes, Isaiah is promising comfort, comfort. He's promising a time of hope and restoration. And he introduces a section of, of comfort and hope by painting a scene. It's kind of like a play. I don't know if you noticed that as we read. There's, there's three voices, actually four voices. One is God, and then there's three messengers that all speak back and forth these messages of comfort. Uh, and uh, so the first, so in, in verses one and two, God speaks. And then in verses three through 11, there's the three messengers that we're going to look at. And we can kind of deal with God and the first messenger, in, in, which is verses one through five. We're going to deal with that first. We're going to look at those first. Um, and then we'll deal with the second messenger in verses 6 through 8, and then the final messenger in verses 9 through 11. So verses 1 through 5, uh, what we learn from these first five verses is, is that true comfort deals with true pain. 
Now, what do I mean by this? Well, whenever you and I have a problem that we, that we face in life, name the problem, we have two options for how to deal with that problem. We can either engage it head on, we can deal with the problem in a way that provides a, a permanent solution to that problem, or instead of dealing with our problems, we can manage our problems. And I'm a perfect, I'm a prime example of, of one who manages with problems rather than dealing with problems. So we manage our problems in a couple of different ways. Either we just ignore them, like we act like they're not there, uh, we kind of temporarily just exist without, without, uh, without really interceding at all, or we uh, come up with a quick fix, kind of a temporary solution. That's why we duct tape our bumpers to, the, to our cars, because we know it's not really dealing with the problem, but we manage, we get by by providing a quick fix. Uh, or we will avoid or skirt around our problems. So parenting is a, pr a prime example of this. Um, uh, my, my son, he's 19 months, but he still causes problems. He, um, he and what right now, uh, he, the, uh, the, the biggest, or not biggest, but just the seasonal problem. We have a Christmas tree in our living room, and uh, he loves to disobey. He loves to attack the Christmas tree and uh, knock down needles and grab as many ornaments as he can and mess with the lights, right? Uh, and so that's a problem that we have. Now, I could engage that as a parent. I can engage that problem either, either by taking it head on or I could ignore the problem. I could just act like it's not really that big of a deal, but even though he's only 19 months, that could really, I mean, he, he would find a way to tear down that tree. There would be broken ornaments everywhere. Lights would be scattered all over the place. Needles, spruce needles would be everywhere, okay? If I just ignored the problem. Or I could come up with a quick fix solution to that problem. We could, I could, and in parenting, the way we do this most often is by, uh, by yelling or by uh, parenting from the couch, so I can tell him over and over again, Micah, stop, Micah, stop, stop, don't do that, don't do that, and then when he doesn't do that, I could raise the bar a little bit, I could start threatening him with consequences, uh, and, that would, and, that, and that would produce in him fear, so he would, not, he would stop doing what I don't want him to do because he's afraid of what would happen if, I, if he, he didn't. Um, <clears throat> and that would solve the problem temporarily, it's a quick fix, but what it's teaching him is that, okay, I can disobey as long as mom and dad aren't looking, right? Uh, so it's okay for me. I, I just need to listen when, when they're around, but, uh, but, I can, uh, but I can disobey as long as they're not there. So it's a quick fix by raising my voice and raising the temperature in the room. I can get him to stop doing what he's, I don't want him to do, but it's not really dealing with the problem long term. Or I can just avoid it altogether. I could just remove the tree from the living room, and then there wouldn't be a problem anymore because there wouldn't be... But my wife loves Christmas trees too much to, to be able to do that, okay? So I can't manage that problem. What instead, what good parents do is they deal with the problem in, in their kids' lives. They, they see an issue, they see disobedience, rebellion, they see potential danger, and they move toward their child. They get down on their, on, on their child's level. They, they stoop down on their knees and make eye contact, get on eye level with their child. They, they invite in a personal and an intimate way to, to stop doing what they're doing. They illustrate the consequences of, of, of the actions. And they, and, they, and, they, and, they, and they speak to the problem that's at the heart of their child, not just the external behaviors, right? Okay? And, that, and in doing that, when we move toward, when we deal with a problem rather than just managing a problem, it leads to long-term, real solutions, okay?
And here's the point of all that long illustration. In the gospel, we do not have a father who merely manages our deepest problems. We don't have a father who manages sin. We have a father who deals with them, who engages sin and the pain that your sin causes head on. He does not skirt around or downplay sin. He engages it head on. And in our passage this morning, we see that fleshed out in these first five verses. We see in in verses one and two, uh, he says, comfort, comfort my people. Why? What's comforting about his people's situation? Because her warfare is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Here's, here's, here's the point that I think we can draw from that, those first two verses, is that true comfort is found in the satisfaction of justice. God deals with our, our, our problem of pain and sin by satisfying justice. I, Isaiah says God can speak tenderly to his people because his, their sin has been paid for. They endured exile, they endured punishment, they endured the pain of rebellion. That phrase, that she has received double from all her sins, that's a tricky phrase, but basically it just means that they've received the full consequences of their sin. And so after enduring the full consequences of their sin, God speaks tenderly to them. Now we hear that, and immediately, if you're like me, my mind begins to worry. Does this mean that God is going to make us, just like he made Israel, endure the full consequences of our sin? Right? This scares us because we think that the only way God uh, could forgive us is by... Uh, is in the absence of justice, right? Not in the, uh, not in the satisfaction of justice. We think that uh, forgiveness comes when God looks at our sin and he sees this mess up and he says, ah, oh, you know what? I'm going to let that one pass. It's really not that big of a deal. I'm in kind of a generous mood today, so I'm going to let you get by with that one, right? That's our, that's our concept of forgiveness. But, but really, that wouldn't be just or right if God did that. Said God mercy, God's mercy results from the satisfaction of God's justice, not the absence of his justice. And this is exactly what Paul tells us that we, have, that we as Christians have in Christ. So whereas the old covenant believers that, that Isaiah is talking to, they, he, he said they would have to deal, they would have to bear the full consequences of their sin on themselves. Paul tells us in the New, New Testament that that is, what's happened, that, that, that is what has happened in Christ. So Romans chapter 3, Paul tells us, he, he t- tells us this. He says, we are justified by his grace as a gift. We like hearing that. Uh, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forth as a propitiation. That just means like a sacrifice that satisfies justice. As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness or God's justice because in his divine patience he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that, this is a key phrase, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, a just judge never pardons the guilty. That defies the definition of what it means to be just. So God set up Christ as a propitiation, as a a sacrifice that satisfies his wrath. And this righteousness should be the deepest of comforts to the deepest of sinners like you and me. 
The gospel does not ignore or downplay, skirt around. It does not manage your sin. The gospel deals with it head on, and it's laid fully on the person and work of Christ. This is the hope that Isaiah merely foreshadowed in in verses 1 and 2. But this same theme kind of continues in in verses 3 through 5 of of Isaiah chapter 40. So not only does the gospel truly heal the painfulness of of sin, in response to that, the the gospel, uh, true comfort inspires life change, and true comfort inspires repentance. Okay? So the the first messenger, and... uh, we see this in verses 3 through 5. The verse, first messenger in verse 3 he says, prepare the, a road for the, wild, for the Lord in the wilderness. If you're following along, make, straight, make a straight highway in the desert, fill in the valleys, level the, ro- the mountains, smooth out the uneven ground. Now, I've never worked for Granite or Alaska Road Builders or any of those companies, but this sounds like a lot of work, Right? To, to say, we are going to take out every mountain, level it, fill in the valley. I mean, imagine, so the, the Cooper Landing bypass road construction or whatever that's going on up there. Imagine if the designers of that plan uh, came to you and said, you know what, instead of going around the mountains like this, we're, we're going to come up with a new plan. We've, we're, we've invested all our money in the best explosives we can buy, and we're just going to blow up the Kenai Mountains. We're just going to level them totally. That way we don't have to work around the mountains. We just go right through them, right? Uh, that, that seems to be what, what Isaiah is imaging. Every mountain is laid waste. Every valley is filled in. We're going to fill in Kenai Lake. That way the road, we just have a straight shot right up to Anchorage. <clears throat> but, but why? Why, why, would, would, why would anything that Isaiah is talking about, why would that be worth that kind of geological manipulation? Well, he tells us in verse 5, he says, the splendor of the Lord will be revealed. That word splendor, it's it's used to describe majesty or glory. So think of like uh, Prince Alibaba and and, and Aladdin, like when he comes in riding on an elephant and all the singers and the dancers and the army and and all the gold and the wealth and the splendor of of a king. Right? And this is what you would do in the ancient world. You would, you would prepare for the arrival of, of the splendor of a king uh, by widening out roads, by smoothing, smoothing them out, by repaving them, or maybe paving them for the first time. Right? And this would all make room for this big caravan of all these wagons and gold and the army and the nobles that would come with a king. Right? So this is what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, a king is coming, a majestic glorious, fabulously wealthy emperor is coming. So let's roll out the red carpet for him. And so he uses this language of leveling out mountains and filling in in valleys to speak figuratively of what his people must do to prepare for the coming of the king. And scripture tells us in the New Testament, we get, we're we're told what it means to prepare for the coming of this king. And uh, In Matthew chapter 3, we looked at this Several months ago in our series in Matthew, uh, a guy named John the Baptist comes on the scene, and this is what we're told about him. He says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. 
So this is 700 years after Isaiah, 500 years after Israel returns from, from Babylon, and John the Baptist shows up saying, I'm the one that Isaiah was talking about. I'm the one saying, prepare the way for the king. And what does that preparation look like? He tells us, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the Christmas hymn that we sing, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. How are we to do that? Let every heart prepare him room. Your preparation for the, for the arrival of the king, your preparation for Advent each year is done in your heart. It's done by responding to the comfort and the hope and the restoration that's offered in the gospel with true life change. Because the gospel, the, the comfort that the gospel offers you is one that inspires repentance and life change. Where is sin preventing your heart from preparing room for the king? Israel was comforted by the fact that their sin would be dealt with. And in response to this comfort, they were to prepare for the coming of their glorious king. We must do, to, do the same today. If, if you're like me, that you're deeply comforted by the truth of the gospel this Christmas. Uh, and this comfort comes from knowing that the pain of your sin has been dealt with, not managed. And so now we, in turn, can respond to and adopt an obedient heart. Okay, so that was the first five verses, and that's the for the first point. Uh, that's the longest point. Okay, we're not only a third of the way there, so you can, you can bear with me. But uh, we'll go back to Isaiah 40, uh, and we'll look at verses 6 through 8 now, okay? This is the voice of the second messenger. So we saw the voice of God and the voice of the first messenger, and then in verses 6 through 8, we see the voice of the second messenger. And he, the, we can summarize what he says by this, by, in this. True comfort is forever true. That's the blank there in your handout. Now, really, this second messenger, kind of, as you notice the flow of thought, he really interrupts the flow of thought between the first and the third messenger. He speaks up, he inserts himself here, and in, bet in, in between the first and the third, we have this weird poem about flowers fading and grass withering, right? And, but the point of all this is in verse 8. The word of the Lord stands forever. So Isaiah interrupts this, this beautiful promise of, of the splendor of a glorious king coming, this promise of comfort and hope and restoration, and he says, look, this promise is like unlike any other you've ever experienced because this promise will never deteriorate. Now Israel needed to be assured of this because it would be a long time off before they would experience this restoration. But the New Testament tells us that we must remember this same truth today. And actually, it, this passage, these verses, again, are quoted in the New Testament. For, and Peter, and Peter, um, 1 Peter 1, verses 24 through 25, Peter draws on these exact verses. He's, he applies this promise to Christian churches, okay? Christians, uh, God's people in Peter's day were still suffering, just like the God's people in Isaiah's day. And, uh, and, and Peter says... Uh, writes to these struggling, suffering, persecuted Christians. He, he writes this. He says, Having, or since, you're, since you have been purified, since your souls have been purified by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, 
but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, did you notice what Peter did there? It's crucial. He says that this reliable, eternal word of the Lord about a king that Isaiah promised, coming in all its splendor and glory, uh, um, is the good news. So this ancient 800-year-old message is the gospel. That is, Jesus is that king who, who is coming. He says the promise is about Jesus. Jesus is the coming king, and we can know that the new life that Jesus has purchased, that, that since we have been born again, the new life that Jesus has purchased uh, is not up for grabs, right? It's not negotiable. It is stable and enduring. And he tells these churches that if they're going to make it through the challenges that they're facing, if they're going to endure suffering and persecution well while still maintaining a sincere brotherly love, then they must... Uh, cultivate within themselves a deeper and deeper trust in the sovereign faithfulness of God. The only way these followers of Christ were going to be able to deal with the rejection, the, the, uh, the injustice, having their rights infringed upon, while still being able to love one another sincerely, was by reorienting their hearts and their minds around God's unwavering ability to do what He says He will do. So where does your heart need to be radically reoriented around the reliability of God's promises? The Christian life is one game of tetherball, right? The, 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 the frustrations at, that you're experiencing at work or that, that family member that just nags at your heart, that's, that's like one kid just beating the ball in one direction. And then the, and then the, the, the frustration about that, that child that never responds to your authority or that you're constantly praying and worrying about or that, that, that health issue or those financial issues. That's the other, that's the other kid hitting it for, hitting the, beating the ball back in the other direction, right? But if you are in Christ, your soul has been fastened and secured to the never-failing, always reliable Word of God. The bitterness, the, the, the resentment, and the anger that builds up when you, when, when you experience those frustrations, frustrations, those flow out of an inability to, to grapple with and to understand, to intake the sovereign faithfulness of God. If you are tethered to the hope of Christ our King, what, what, does, what can this world throw at us that we can't endure faithfully? All right, and then we move on to, verse, to verses 9 through 11 for our final point. Uh, Isaiah intru introduces us to the third messenger. These are the, the herald, herald. Go, go to the tops of the mountaintops, O, o Zion, O Jerusalem, and a herald. And he, in, in verse 9 and 10, he picks up on the thought, the flow of thought from verse 5. He says, in verse 5 ended, we saw, the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And then verse 10, the glory of the Lord will be revealed when, behold, the Lord comes with might and His arm rules for Him. Again, this is kingly language, a king ruling with might and, and, and strength. His re reward and recompense are before Him. And that's weird language, but it's reference to really the king's people. The reward is 
uh, the reward for the king's victory is the people. That's his inheritance uh, for delivering his people. That's what he's fought for. And then verse 11, a uh, uh, shift in tone. He says, not only is this sh- he a strong and victorious warrior, but he's also a tender shepherd. Did you notice that language? Did you feel that language when we read it? Uh, he, he gathers baby sheep up in his arms, and he carries them close to his body in the fold of his jacket, kind of. He, he gently leads those vulnerable sheep who have, who have young. This is the arrival of a tender warrior. And from these verses, we learn something more about the love and the comfort of God. True comfort comes in the presence of the shepherd king. Israel's hope was in the arrival, the presence, God dwelling in flesh and blood, inhabiting space and time with them as a tender warrior. That's why the coming of a king is such a big deal. Have you ever noticed that just by, there's, there are some people, just by their presence, with, um, when they walk into the, into the room, they can completely change the feel or the environment of the space of the room, right? There's some people who, when you see them walk in the room, your heart just sinks, right? Because obnoxious people have a way of kind of making the whole room just feel, ugh, and you just, they have a way of clearing the room, right? Other people, they have a sense, just by their presence, have a, have a weightiness. There's a depth and a substance to them. You, just by spending time with, with older, wiser, experienced men and women who have scars and who have, who have trusted in God and who, have, who, are humbled, who are still humbled before him, like there, there's a real depth to those kind of people and you, that you can feel just by being in a conversation, being in a room with them. There's other people, the person that you love or, or a good friend who, when they walk into a room, they, they admit your, your heart is lifted. Right? They, they have a way of, of impacting the way the room feels just by their presence. Presence is powerful. And we see the same concept in the gospel. The, 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 gospel, the comfort offered us in the gospel is tied to God's presence with his people. Now this is really important for us to grasp because Israel needed the presence of their shepherd king. In fact, all of salvation history, all of God's history in the Bible is, is pointing to them, is, is pointing to this, the day that God would be in the same time and space, in the same room with his people. If you're following along with the Advent reading and devotional plan this month, we, 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 know, we see this. We started in Genesis when God dwelt with Adam and Eve in perfect fellowship with them in the garden, in his presence. Sin drove them away from, this, from his presence. And really, every story in the Old Testament from there on after is a story of how God is saving his people, bringing his people back into his presence uh, by, by delivering them. So uh, Israel is blessed and they experience victory when God is with them. That's the, uh, we, we see that over and over again. They, God dwells with his people in the tabernacle God, and then permanently in the temple under Solomon when, when the temple is built, God formally dwells with his people. But then sin and rebellion um, crop up again and again and eventually God withdraws his presence from his people. That's what the book of Ezekiel tells us that, that God withdraws his presence from the temple and the temple is destroyed when the people are sent into Babylon. Uh, 
And then the temple is rebuilt. Uh, God's dwelling place is rebuilt, but it's only a shadow of their former glory. And the Old Testament closes, and there's 400 years of silence in which God does not dwell with his people until the true temple comes. Jesus, God himself, steps into the room. He he drops to his people's eye level. And through his presence, he deals with pain and sin. God delivers through his presence. And this is the love and the comfort of God that we celebrate when we celebrate Christmas. Right, that, that a baby born 2,000 years ago, uh, in a baby born 2,000 years ago, God's plan to dwell again with his people in a world free from sorrow, that was begun. Right, and he will bring it to completion when he returns again in, in the second, the great, the true advent. So if you want to know the true comfort that is offered to you in the gospel, the comfort that we cherish during Christmas, know this, that gospel comfort is the enduring promise that our King will once again live with His people. So as we, when we sing hymns like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom Captive Israel, we own that as our own own hymn. We're not merely singing about Israel. We are Israel longing for the day when Emmanuel comes again. When we sing songs like Joy to the World, the Savior Reigns, that, that, song, that song actually was not written about Christmas. That song was written about the second coming of Christ. So we long for the day when the King will really reign because that's what Isaiah longed for. That's what God's people for generations and millennia have longed for. We want the world set right by the presence of a king. So we sing, come thou long expected Jesus, because we want Jesus to come rule in all our hearts alone. Right? We want him to return. As much as Christmas is about looking back to a baby born in a manger, Christmas is about preparing our hearts, cultivating a hope for his second coming. In, the, in Hebrews 9, uh, chapter, verse 20, chapter 9, verse 28, we read that, that, that we read, uh, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, but he will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, sin has already been dealt with, but to save those who eagerly await. This is the blessed hope of Christmas, that Christ will return and in his presence set this world right. Let's pray that God would grow our ability to hope in his second coming. And when every pain will be erased and every sad thing will come untrue. Let me pray for us. Father, we, um, we praise you because your word will stand forever. Your word is enduring and abiding. You have, uh, uh, in your grace, satisfied justice. In your grace, you call us to repentance that we might know and taste and experience the true comfort, the true joy, the true love that is offered in your gospel. So we long for the day when you will dwell with your people. 
We praise you for the way that the first coming, the incarnation, shows us that and gives us a taste of your presence with us. But it, it, it causes our hearts to yearn and long for even more the second coming, the true advent, the second arrival when you will come again and every sad thing will come untrue, Lord. Teach us uh, to, to walk through this Christmas season with all the stresses, with all the anxieties, with all the hurts, with all the, the fears and unknowns. Teach us to walk through this Christmas season with an ever-increasing longing for and a desire to see you return. Orient our hearts and minds around this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.